You're listening to a Hindustan Times podcast brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. Hi, so today we have with us Ilse Kohler Rolofsson and uh, she's written Camel Karma, 20 Years Among India's Camel Nomads. Hi, Ilse. Hi, Manjula. Lovely to be here. Yes. And Ilse, you know, like we've known each other for quite a while. And I think actually from the first edition of this Camel Karma, right? Exactly. I'm... And that was published in 2014. So yes. if I remember correctly, we met in uh, spring 2015. Yeah, must have been. Something like that. Yes. So, uh, so I mean, everything I, you know, when I'm like reading the book, I think I read it also earlier parts of it. So when I'm like looking at it again, and I'm thinking, my God, you know, in the last 10 years, so many things have happened with you and the camels as well, right? So where do you want to start? Let's start with how, you know, let's start with how the book also starts. Why you got into camels, basically. You know, why I got into camels. So actually, I got into camels quite a while before coming to India. And I came to India only to uh, because at that time, uh, it this was in 1990. I came to India in 1990 for the first time. And at that time, India had the third largest camel population in the world. So it had like more than a million camels. So it seemed a good place to do some camel research. Uh, also at that time, nothing was really known about the local camel breeding communities like the Raika. You know, they were un- nobody had heard of them. Or I couldn't find anything about them while doing research before coming to India. Uh, I I didn't even know they existed. So, um, yeah. And so, so that was at that time. Now, more than 30 years ago, India had such a rich camel population. But by now, the camel population has virtually, I mean, it's its practically gone. I mean, there are still 100,000 camels or a little bit more left in India. But India is the only country where the camels are actually uh, disappearing. In un- other countries, the camels are uh, increasing tremendously for various reasons for uh in africa because of their drought adaptability so they are you know former cattle keeping people are switching to camels mm-hmm. uh that, i mean that's one factor and then uh, the other factors are that there's a lot of interest in camel milk now as a health food mm-hmm. and thirdly in the arab countries um Camel racing, camel beauty contests, and all these things are taking over because it's like a revival of their heritage um, in a, in a new uh, avatar, basically. Mm-hmm. But uh, why do you think, oh, you know, in Rajasthan, though the camel is the state animal now, right? It's recognized as the state animal. Um, why is it? Um, or is is there any hope? Like you do end the book uh, on a note of hope. But generally, like, honestly, is there much hope, you know, for reviving camels? In in India, I mean, there is, I I don't know, I, I think there's hope of stabilizing the uh, the numbers of camels, that they, that they don't totally disappear. I think there's a niche market uh, for their products. Uh, so there's a range of new products we've, we've also been trying to develop uh, for, for which there's a market. But... Uh, one of the problems really in India is that uh, 
you know, it's the only country where camels are not being used for meat. So uh, in other countries, the camel breeders, they have like double income. They can sell the milk and they can sell the, the male camels uh, for meat. And in India, that's not possible. And uh, the camel milk market also, also I mean, it, it, it is growing and taking off, but it's also, it's new. I mean, the, like the urban Indians have never uh, really gone into camel milk or so. Actually, this is one, this is one of the most amazing things that, that that's happened is that uh, when I first came uh, in the early years, so that was in the mid-1990s, People thought camel milk is disgusting and Raika was actually put into jail for selling camel milk because it was claimed to be hazardous to human health. So we had to go to the Supreme Court at the time to get that overturned. So and then, you know, for for decades even, uh, OK, the guy got free, he got out of jail. Uh, and, and so on. But that doesn't mean that other people were interested in buying camel milk. So, but there's been a turnaround now. So people, uh, there's awareness about the health benefits of camel milk. And um, it's it's starting to develop uh, into, I think, Rajasthan's unique selling point because of the Raika culture uh, in which it is embedded. And that's getting increasing recognition, both in India and also globally. So, th- so there is hope. You know, you devote a whole large, quite a few pages to the to why the why camel milk is healthy, right? And you know, because they feed on so many nutritious herbs and a whole, especially Rajasthani camels. Unlike maybe you know uh, cattle, which is bred on just specific kinds of grass, these are free range, and therefore you know, and so the milk that they produce is also uh, uh, very healthy. And I've had camel milk. I mean, you give. I remember going into the fields and the Raika is giving me camel milk, and it is really actually very tasty. I don't know why anybody would be put in jail for that. No, camel milk can be really good. So, but they, I mean, there are two factors uh, involved. Uh, one is like species specific. So, camel milk, as such, the the proteins in camel milk are different than those in cattle. And um, and and that is one of the reasons. So so that has to do with this, the species of being a camel uh, itself. It also doesn't cause um, lactose intolerance. Right? That's that's another point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so more people can actually drink camel milk. But the, for me, the most important point is the fact that camels traditionally they are they are grazed in nomadic. They are kept in nomadic systems where they are not stall fed, but they are allowed to roam freely uh, either on their own or uh, herded by a Raika. And uh, then they feed on a diversity of species according to uh, a diversity of forage plants, mostly trees. Mm-hmm. And according to traditional knowledge, uh, it, the camel eats on 36 different types of uh, mostly uh, trees and shrubs. Mm-hmm. And all these, uh, so we've identified, I mean, we've come up with a list of 36 types of plants that camels are eating. And all of them are also used in Ayurvedic medicines for uh, for medicinal uh, reasons. So they have some therapeutic value, mm. and um, so it's it's basically it's the um, it's the system in which camels are kept. And this is the thing about Rajasthan that the, the camels are only kept in this traditional systems, whereas in other countries in the Arab in the oil-rich Arab countries they are now being put into big. Um, you know, like mega dairies where thousands of camels are in one place 
and they are all stall fed. You know, they the the this is so uh, unbelievable, really, that we have these big camel farms in, in the Emirates, and all the feed is imported. You know, it's grown alfalfa hay or so it's grown in california you know with a lot of water and then it's shipped from there uh, to the emirates to feed those camels so the camels in these um in these big uh, i mean they're almost like concentrated animal feed operations they uh, the the diet is very bland the the feed is very bland the camels are not happy the camels need spicy food, a friend of mine uh, told me. They're like South Asians. You know, they want spicy food. They don't want uh, some bland uh, alfalfa and corn. Huh? So the camels are not happy themselves. And also the milk is not that nutritious. Now, it doesn't provide those phytochemicals that uh, nomadic uh, camels provide in their milk. I want to emphasize that point, actually. You were saying cattle. Uh, cattle is different. If, if cattle are also kept in nomadic uh, systems, as they are still in Jaisalmer and those areas, uh, then at least the ghee, for instance, is supposed to be so much better. I mean, it's a huge difference. Uh, the ghee from uh, from cows that are kept in the nomadic pastoral systems, in uh, quality wise. Mm. You know, which brings me to this this thing about you know our move towards you know, even now in Gur, in places like Gurgaon you see uh, herds of you know sheep and cattle you know just but as the uh, grazing grounds reduce you uh, even in the last 5 years i've seen a reduction in uh, flocks of these you know they used to be behind my house and on the roads you know you'd see whole uh, herdsmen coming with them and of course everything is being built up and as we become more well you know i don't know prosperous uh, as a nation prosperous in the modern way but you know with buildings and uh, and infrastructure uh, how do we hold on to the uh, traditional you know the the wealth of uh, uh, of something like a pastoral culture because it has so many things within it which is worth preserving it it is totally worth preserving because the product i mean for the from the human health perspective as well as the general uh, perspective of the environment of biodiversity and of uh, and even of climate change because you know these pastoralist herds they can go i mean they're mobile they can go wherever you want i mean they can split up into small units and they can take all the biomass that's available naturally that's away anyway that doesn't cost us anything in terms of you know fertilizers or chemicals or so they can harvest all that and um, convert it you know without any fossil fuels into these highly nutritious products so i mean it's the most natural and the best way of uh, of producing food uh, if you, you know, if you have a but this is the difference to agriculture, I mean, to crop cultivation. If you grow crops, then, you know, you need to clear the field. You put a monoculture in there. You put, you need the chemical fertilizers because it's a monoculture. Then also you need pesticides and, and all these things. So, so those growing that kind of food is expensive ecologically. And, um, and the pastoral systems, they do everything kind of for free, you know, and they conserve biodiversity at the same time. I mean, they're the, in my opinion, <laughs> I mean, the most congenial invention humans ever made. Yeah. And and they only depend, the crucial factor is the relationship between people and animals. You know, you need yes. to, they only work 
if there is a close relationship between the, if there's mutual trust between the animals and the herder, because otherwise you can't control them. I mean, they run here and there and, and, and whatever. So, and this is what fascinates me really, you know, that, that closeness between humans and people. No, you know, I mean, uh, the Raika and their herds, whether it's like cattle or you know sheep or, uh, and or camels, they have a very close relationship, right? And I mean, in our country so far, it has seemed that we. It seems like I mean, I won't say that I am not one of those people because I never even thought about this. It's only after I started reading your work that I started thinking about how one automatically assumes that you know herders are. Uh, generally they're not viewed very positively right but now there's a change in that view because we are more aware of the uh, ecological ramifications of industrial farming and all that so do you want to talk about that and whether you know this slow change in the the perspective of you know herding communities or of pastoralists can change the way we eat and the way we uh, our relationships with animals as well uh, on the whole in future yeah i mean the, i think there is a slow change but it's going very slow so as you probably know like i mean livestock is very controversial has become very controversial and among young people are becoming vegan and i can totally understand that also because if they lo- learn about the cruelty that is involved in the industrial system then um, that's perfectly understandable but and the, the the sad thing is exactly, I mean, that they are not aware of the existence of uh, of these different, of the pastoral systems. So the, the visibility hasn't hasn't been high at all. I mean, it is slowly changing, but I don't think it's um, changing fast enough, really. And uh, unfortunately, the, you know, the life, there's a big livestock lobby out there. And there, right now we have the COP is starting, I think it started yesterday in... Um, Abu Dhabi, or no, in Dubai, is it Dubai or Abu Dhabi, the, of the climate change, no, the UN uh, conference on climate change that, that's uh, going on right now. So there's a big livestock lobby out there, and they are trying to convince the world of, uh, you know, the importance of livestock. And it is true that livestock has, it. I mean, we need livestock in the system. I mean, I don't think humanity can survive uh, without livestock uh, and, and just, you know, live off artificial meat or so. No, I mean, we need the livestock for ecological reasons, for food security, because it's the only way of producing food in those drought-stricken uh, areas. And and that's actually a huge part of the world. You know, like two-thirds, two-thirds of the world's agricult- so-called agricultural land can only be used by means of livestock, Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's actually a fairly small part, uh, only one third that can be used for growing crops. No? So, so we absolutely, um, we, we need the livestock, um, for food security, uh, and, and so on. So, but, un, but so there's this livestock lobby and they lump everything together. No? I mean, the industrial systems and the pastoralists mm-hmm. and, and, and that, that is, um, that's wrong. And the pastoralists, they have to, Make it clear that they are different. Uh, you know, they they have nothing to do with the uh, that industrial systems. I mean, those are apples and oranges, or even worse. So. Mm-hmm. so you know, like when I look at pastoralists, and you know, even if one is averse to uh, do industrialized farming, you know, and methods of so suppose say 
uh, you're presenting an argument to a vegan, you know, who says that, okay, uh, this, we should stop eating meat completely, or we should stop having, you know, animal products completely. But this is impractical, right, for the whole world to follow. So, but, however, when it comes to pastoralists and their methods, with the, you know, much less cruelty to animals and more return to the earth, it's more eco-friendly, right? So do you want to explain that? Um. Yeah, I mean, so exactly. So vegan veganism doesn't uh, doesn't make any sense, and actually, nor does uh, total hundred percent vegetarianism uh, make uh, sense because if you produce milk, uh, then also, I mean, the meat is also going to be there. <laughs> I mean, what you do with the male animals, right? If if uh, you know you 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 produce milk and for for your paneer and your your dahi and so on, but you will have male uh, animals as well. And what do you do with them? No? I mean, so in my perspective, the most sensible approach is um, to that we keep livestock in balance um, with the available resources, with the, with the available, locally available resources. If we limit, you know, livestock to the numbers that can be stay, uh, sustained on on the areas that are available for grazing rather than uh, what's happening in you know in the livestock the livestock scientists they think only of efficiency and of um, you know how much feed you put into the animal and how much food you get out of it and, and they don't consider you know if maybe the the soybeans to feeding the animals are grown in the other end of the world or so that that, that doesn't enter into their calculations so we need to um, produce lives or produce raise livestock uh, in balance with locally available resources i'm not sure i answered your question or maybe i didn't no no i got it but go, going back to the camel now you know i mean i see like india's uh, relationship with uh, with all its livestock is very complicated i mean like i see even <laughs> in the, you, know, <laughs> you know we have a complicated relationship with our livestock and yeah. something is good and something it isn't but uh, we don't know anyway so even the raika like you mentioned how they at first like when you first came to India in the early 90s, they didn't even sell their milk, right? They didn't sell their milk no. and they wouldn't sell the female animals and, and eating yeah. was just out of the question. I mean, like, I, exactly. you know, when you were talking to one of the, uh, uh, I don't know, one of the Sindhi Muslim uh, herders also, he sounded completely shocked when you said, yeah. <laughs> when you asked why they are not used for meat. So unlike in mm -hmm. other parts of the world. So this is something that we we have. So, but how, uh, you know, how does the, like over the last 30 years, perhaps these are the many reasons why the numbers of the camels have also dwindled, right? Because yeah. taboo is also part of it. So you want to talk about that? Yeah, so, so the numbers uh, dwindled um, for various reasons. I mean, one of the reasons that, I mean, at, initially when I first came, the reason that was in everybody's minds was there is not enough grazing left. Uh, you know, these wildlife sanctuaries have been established. So we, uh, the Raika said, we're losing our, uh, in our summer grazing areas and our camels are starving. So they have miscarriages and all the babies are dying and, 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 and so, for a long time, actually, uh, we also, as an organization, uh, focused on uh, on the grazing rights is issues. But then, uh, in the around 2000, actually, it became evident that camels were actually being sold for slaughter from the Pushkar Fair. 
Uh, and it was like very hush hush. And everybody was, nobody was talking about that openly. Everybody was too embarrassed uh, because it went against the culture and, and so on. And um, so we actually, we tried to, you know, we wrote letters to the government telling them this is happening and uh, nobody paid any attention. And then um, in 2000, and the, the num actually this was in a way, it, it was good. It brought money into the pockets huh, of the Reichar because they got a lot of money for a big male camel. Um, but again, I mean, the, the, the camel population continued to go down. And then in 2014, uh, under the Vasundra Raja government, the camel was declared, declared state animal because it was, um, you know, in order to save it. And we thought this is a brilliant idea. I mean, there'll be subsidies and other support for the camels and so on. But unfortunately, then in 2015, uh, there was a law put into place the, which prohibited the export of camels from uh, Rajasthan, across Rajasthan state borders, and apart from also using them for meat and so on. So, and, and that was really what, uh, that, that was kind of the death knell for, for, for camels because earlier on, at least some camels were sold, you know, to, uh, UP and Haryana and so on as work animals, uh, creating a market for the male camels. And, um, so this, this made everything uh, very difficult that, that camels could not be taken out of Rajasthan. And, and of course it happened and camels were actually clandestinely taken out of Rajasthan. And then uh, animal rights organizations, they came and they rescued the cam, they so-called rescued the camels and brought them back to Rajasthan where they said they belong. And then nobody wanted them in Rajasthan. I mean, it, it, it's, it was terrible and it continues to be uh, terrible that anim that camels are taken, you know, moved out of Rajasthan for whatever reason. It can be for, you know, people going on migration or camels being taken for, uh, you know, to carry water and so on, uh, not necessarily for slaughter. And uh, these camels are regularly, they are intercepted by animal rights people who then bring them back to Rajasthan. And uh, they have established a sanctuary uh, near Sirohi, but the camels, it's not a good story. No? It's very sad, actually, because the camels that are rescued, they, they usually... They can't take staying in the sanctuary, you know, again, in a confined area where they don't have the opportunity to graze and they also uh, fade away. And so that is not a solution. Um, yeah, it's not, unfortunately. God, I mean, these like it's it's really a, uh, an illustration of how, um, I mean, the best intentions can just, you know, backfire. Yeah, no, the best intention have, uh, exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway, so, so you know, talk about talk about your own camel herd which you have, you know, to make this yeah. much. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll all start crying. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, we have our own camel herd, and that also, I mean, <laughs> so obviously we don't herd our own camels. Um, although there were periods when we did, because there was nobody else available. That is the other thing that uh, you know that Raika knowledge about how to manage camels. Uh, that has also trickled away. And young people are generally not interested. I know, why would they? I mean, if they can't earn income from camels, why would they spend their life herding camels? Obviously not. So young people are not interested and the old people are, they are dying. And uh, uh, so there are very few people who, who are able actually to take care of one's camels. 
And now, I mean, we are lucky now. We have a young, not he's not that young, but uh, he worked in the city. His name is Maduram, and he he can't take working in the city, and he takes care of camels, and he has a real sense of responsibility. So we're very happy about that. And um, but we see that those Raika, you know, so we've set, we've set up that dairy a few years ago, where uh, you know a certain number of families they deliver their milk, and we pay them. Uh, 60 rupees per liter so if they uh you know even if they only deliver five to ten liters per day it, it's enough to keep the family in business and and the camel herds uh, in business and in our area actually because people get a like a monthly income we pay them monthly for the for the milk that they actually they took take good care of their camels and the numbers are also increasing so uh, around our area there in Sadri, at the edge of the Aravalis, where uh, you know the desert starts, the camel population has actually increased again. So, so there is, um, I mean, one can do something. And the the, but see, but we are like a small, you know, a, a small organization with very little resources, and uh, so we can't have an impact on a larger scale. I mean, it would need investment by a government or by a benefactor to actually um, you know implement i mean to set up a network of micro dairies in rajasthan and the milk you know the milk could be used to uh, to give it to poor people and to women you know camel milk has a very high iron content so it's it's very likely there's no research on it but it's very good for anemia yeah. uh, for and most women have anemia yes. and 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 children also. So, I mean, if the camel milk could be um, then, you know, collected locally and then given to a poor, uh, you know, to pregnant women or nursing women and young children and people with tuberculosis, then, uh, then you could do every, I mean, you could achieve conservation of the camel and do an enormous amount of good for, uh, in terms of healthcare for people. You know, while I was reading your book, I was thinking that, you know, a lot of a lot of the problems all, but generally the view is that, uh, you know, I don't know, the view is that building things and uh, uh, building infrastructure and building industries and all are what is paramount. Of course, that's important, but all, but in in the process when you're losing all these things the the heritage which is uh, uh, maybe you know which is not recognized in the first place what about that sort of um, you know that angle what you mean in, in terms of heritage yes mm-hmm. so i mean there's enormous uh, heritage value in uh, in the cam- in rajasthan's camel culture yes. and heritage is what i mean it it's what counts uh, i mean that's where uh, that Heritage creates wealth because, you know, heritage is something that disappearing. So it becomes really valuable. I mean, you can see it in Europe, uh, you know, those where, you know, old cities or old towns are preserved. I mean, they become tourist attractions. People, yes. I mean, heritage, it's intangible on, on one level, but, but there's a lot of uh, commercial potential there. So, yes. so this is what's actually missing. Now the, um, the appreciation of the value of heritage. So in Rajasthan, you know, we, yeah, Rajasthan is proud of its heritage, looking mostly at the, at the forts and the, uh, you know, the, the Rajput culture. Basically, it's a Rajput culture, all the heritage hotels and 
uh, and that's fine. I mean, that's wonderful because they, they do appreciate the, uh, you know, the old architecture and, and, and conserve it. But the rural culture is also, it's something, it's a treasure, really. And the Raika camel culture is one of the biggest uh, jewels <laughs> in that in that collection of treasures. That's what I have. Yeah. So, and this actually, the fact that in Rajasthan, exactly, so we have the Raika culture, and we have the fact that the camels are grazing on all this biodiversity and in a system which is basically it's cruelty free. Yes. You know, we, we we don't separate the, the calves from the mothers. The the camels have the freedom to walk around and choose their own diets and they have a close relationship to humans. So it's it's an it's a, an alternative model of um uh, livestock food production and and that ha also has value so we have actually we have a uh, our company camel charisma we have an mou with a startup in uh, abu dhabi for producing cruelty free uh, camel milk which they want to use to make uh, health food products you know they don't want to have the camel milk powder from uh, the local camel milk powder they want to have uh, camel milk powder from from us from rajasthan Yes, free range camels. <laughs> yes, exactly, free range. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So um, you know, I'm also you. You talk about you know the early days when you come uh, come to Rajasthan and you know you become acquainted with the Raikas. Now, uh, why is it that unlike in in Jordan and other places, why do you think that you know in India specifically we have such an aversion to eating the meat of these animals? I mean, it's always been like this. So from your perspective, you know, somebody who, who comes in from the outside, who has a familiarity with other camel breeding cultures, and then, you know, you you uh, uh, you keep talking to them and asking them this, and they, they all look shocked. So uh, from your perspective, why? How do you think? Why do you think this is so, you know? So you see, so I've, you know, I fell in love in camels exactly working in Jordan because I was, uh, you know, I was fed up with veterinary medicine and I was working on that archaeological dig and I saw this Bedouin camel herd passing by uh, every day and there was that harmony. The herder was singing to the camels and uh, it was springtime. There was flowers all over. It was just such a beautiful picture and, and that's what attracted me. And then I started researching camels, uh, like literature, and I found out how useful they are for food production. And uh, then I actually applied for a fellowship to study uh, camel pastoralism in Jordan. And uh, they did not give me a research permit for that uh, because they said camels are, you know, an anachronism. We don't need research on camels. So, <laughs> and uh, so. So for if, anyway, what what I mean, I I got into archaeology and I worked as an you know a zoo archaeologist for many years, and then I got tired of working just with bones of dead animals, and I had the opportunity to work in the Sudan, uh, do some brief field work there with the Rashida um, tribe, and I loved it. I really I was totally smitten. Uh, and then, but then the situation in the Sudan changed the political reasons, so they didn't give visas anymore. Uh, and then I was looking for an alternative and then exactly. And so they were, I mean, Somalia had the largest number of camels followed by Sudan and followed by India. So India was the, the, the logical choice for me. And, 
yeah so i came to india and of course you know 30 years ago the the situation was was totally different i mean india was kind of uh, removed and the raika i mean i was at the time i was traveling i used i was traveling with a car in a taxi in an ambassador taxi yes. to try to talk to them and they all thought i was government you know they thought because i'm i'm coming in an ambassador so i was the indian government so they had they, they didn't have a concept of uh, foreigners even uh, the raika and uh, so and initially it was impossible nobody wanted to talk to me uh, they they were just what point <laughs> what benefit was it for them to talk to me no? so oh it was very extremely frustrating for months on end and i mean i i thought i'm not going to get a single data point here from all my from my during my research but then um some of them told me about the 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 disease problems and that camels were dying and they found out that I'm a veterinary doctor and so then they wanted help mm-hmm. for me and that that's where I then uh, I mean I arranged I collected some money for my friends and I bought the medicines for the camels and suddenly I was uh, I mean super popular uh, they loved me because <laughs> Uh, because I mean that's paramount in their mind even now, and I mean they always want medicines for their camels. They don't want anything else. The health of their camels is really uppermost in the minds of the Raika. I mean continuously that there's been no change in that. And there is one particular kind of medicine that they really uh, totally believe in, uh, and um, they really want that. And I, when I started providing that. Uh, uh, you know, many years ago, they were really, uh, they were so happy. And that basically that changed my relationship uh, with them. Mm-hmm. And um, then, of course, the next step was that they, um, they all, they wanted more medicines. And as, and they were starting to overstate actually the the nature of the problem. So then I thought, no, we, we need to get scientific data, how important this disease actually is. And then that so that led to a project where we put ear tags on the camels in order to find out you know how many uh, camels were actually dying how many had uh, miscarriages and what's the survival rate of the calves and uh, we were trying to get some scientific data uh, at the time and then you know i mean it's just been one thing leading to another uh first it was just pure i mean charitability just giving them some medicines because i i felt bad about just coming and taking photos and not doing anything <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so i mean i had no idea that i you know i would spend well basically it's almost like the rest of my life uh in india for doing this <laughs> yeah. but i'm very uh, but i still i really believe i mean this is so important uh, because the Raika, they show, I mean, they demonstrate a way of keeping animals, raising livestock in tune with the environment in according to also high animal welfare standards. And mm. and, and and it should be a model for the rest of the world. Yes. And slowly we are getting to that stage uh, where, where people recognize this. Mm. Uh, so I don't regret one bit um, that I've been here the last 30 years. 30 years and uh yeah and mm-hmm. yeah you know and when i was reading the book also i was thinking that this is a model that you know other uh, people raising other livestock can also follow right instead of going into the whole mechanized yeah group, i mean which uh, is so... yeah, 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 this is actually the thing i mean the raika are not unique 
they are many. I mean, India to start with, India is full of people who uh, raise livestock according to the same principles. And start, I mean, from the Himalayas down to uh, the the southern tip of India, it's full of these people. Yes. Uh, everywhere. I mean, in Odisha, in uh, in Tamil Nadu, in you know, you find them everywhere. And but they were they've remained largely invisible and uh, or they're not recognized. But they are, I mean, enormous relevance for India's economy also. So we've done some uh, calculations which show that actually about 70 percent of India's meat and more than 50 percent of its milk is produced in these kind of systems, uh, in systems where animals are not stall fed, but are grazing on common property resources or, you know, village grazing grounds or in the forest and so on. So it's, and India is the largest, uh, you know, it's the largest uh, milk producer in the world. It's uh, one of the largest, it's the largest exporter of sheep and goat, I think. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's huge. It's of huge economic importance, and it's it it's all on the back of these people, which are regarded as uh, backward. Mm. Um, so, so this this regarding them as backward is there going to be a change in this? Because I remember coming uh, to to LPPS to you know to Sadri and attending some talk where some government type was actually. Suge- saying this that you know poor pe- you poor people and I don't you know I mean I thought those herders were the opposite of poor I mean maybe they don't ha- live no. in a <laughs> flat <laughs> flat you know but they had wealth in other thing but that's a different yeah, conversation yeah. but this is the official view right so yeah. you know so it 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 actually I mean I think it's a it goes back to colonial times yes. This uh, disregard, and uh, in, I mean, this was always a part of the, you know, India's uh, way of producing food was that integration between livestock and and crop cultivation, where the livestock would you, you know, contributed the manure and exchange for the manure they got, um, they got grain, and and you know, there were all these exchange systems, and it functioned perfectly. And then the 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 British came, and they had, uh, so they couldn't control these, I mean, these uh, people who were moving around. They couldn't tax them. They didn't know where they were. So they, you know, tried to, uh, they declared of them, some of them criminal tribes and, and, and all that. And um, this actually then, it that the opinion about them didn't change after India became independent uh, because, you know, the, the animal science, the new animal scientists, so they were sent to the U.S. or to Europe for doing their, you know, their PhDs or their masters. And then they were, it, it was instilled into them this efficiency thinking where, you know, you the default mode for keeping livestock is stall fed. Livestock in Western animal scientists, it's just a kind of a machine. You know, you put feed in and you get food out. And, and the relationship between the feed and the food is all that counts. And you disregard all the other externalities in terms of animal welfare and the environment. So, 
I mean, it sounds like a platitude, but it needs to be decolonized, <laughs> the thinking about the livestock. Uh, because yeah. what India has, it's a, it's, it's a treasure. And it's so, and it's, but it's not just, India is maybe the country where pastoralism is, maybe it's the country which has the largest number, I don't know. But we know that similar systems exist all over the world, starting, you know, with in the Arctic area, you have the reindeer herders, and in the Himalayas, uh, or in the Tuham camels up there in the Gobi Desert, you have the yaks up there at the high altitudes, then you have... Um, you have sheep and goat all over the place. You have the, the camels in the desert. The buffalo, buffaloes are all over India. And uh, in South America, you have the, the llamas and alpacas yeah. and so on keep kept in those systems. Huh? So mm -hmm. so it's not it's not a, a minor thing. It's a major uh, phenomenon, uh, which just hasn't been given that importance. Mm -hmm. Now to get back to the camel, you know, what is it about the, uh, you know, what is it about the camel and, you know, that is so um, attractive to you, <laughs> you know, that this karmic connection that you have with camels? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I mean, so it's the nature of the camels, you know, the, fe the female camels, if they're treated um, in a nice way, they are very, um, they're curious, they're noble, they are very friendly. They come, you know, if you go into a herd, they come and they, they sniff you out. They give you a little peck on the cheek and they're very dignified. And uh, they also, camels keep going. I mean, they keep going until they collapse, basically. I mean, they're very uh, reliable animal. I mean, I just like their nature. So, so, so that's part of it. I mean, the nature of the camel as such, but also then, the, I mean, the pastoral systems, the nomadic systems, you know, there's some romance attached to it. I, mm -hmm. I admit that. And um, and this is yeah. So that's and and so initially, you know, I was fascinated by camels. It was just kind of emotional and uh, yeah, something that happens. But then, you know, if you read about camels and you learn about them, then you recognize how important they actually are for food production and all these things for mm -hmm. adaptation to the climate. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the, but the, the sad thing is now you may have heard that 2024 is the International Year of Camelids. Yes. Uh, falling in the tracks of the International Year of Millets. That's yes, yes. Here. And um, so there is a lot of attention is going to focus on, on camelids, which also, you know, it's not just the, the dromedary camel we have in India and the Tuhan Bactrian camel. It's also the South American um, camelids. They are um, part of that, mm. that group. But the thing is that now, again, I mean, we we face a huge problem, in my opinion, that the the research now on camel it, it goes into the same direction uh, as it has gone you know with dairy cattle before where it's just all about you know yields and uh, production and efficiency and uh, without much regard for uh, camel welfare and uh, where a lot of the research now because it's supposed to be progressive and modern i mean it's at the genome level and not it doesn't uh, engage with the the existing systems and i'm actually i'm very concerned about the situation in the uh, in those oil rich arab countries mm. where it's uh, i mean so it's for one it's dairy cam it's uh, yeah it's dairy camels and they use embryo transfers uh, just uh, breed really high performing camels for one thing which mm. leads to a lot of narrowing of the gene pool then there's the racing camel world and it's 
that's also terrible because it you know it uses the, the young camels that are two years old they are being raised and uh, when they are not really mature enough and they they have problems then in their feet and they can't race and they run on painkillers and then they're also finished so so you know all all of this at the basis of all of this is a human uh, disregard for not just the welfare of the animal but for the welfare of the planet right basically that is at the crux of all this so what is it what can change that you know it's it's actually i mean i don't think it's a con- conscious disregard for the climate and the, it's it is just this belief in like in more and you know we need more we need more efficiency we need more yields and it's it's, it's this kind of thinking it's deeply ingrained i guess in 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 people uh, so so exactly it's ignored the larger context is is absolutely ignored it's not, i don't think it's a it's a conscious uh, attitude I, I really admire all the things that you've done you know making the the camel the camel paper and the rugs and you know all these attempts to get the uh, raika uh, uh, involved in a more um, sort of profit making but still uh, including their culture in it do you think you mentioned it all in the book as well but you think going forward that has a market because i think there's a market yeah, all the things, the, the papers from camel poo and the rugs from uh, camel hair, all those things, they, they are, they're really, I mean, they're beautiful as no. well as, you know. But, no, definitely uh, there's some... Uh, definitely there's a mar- there's a definitely a market for those products and the, i think the market you know as the market is actually will improve now for us uh, you know our company is called camel charisma uh, and uh, so but we started focusing on the milk because we can't do everything it needs a lot of uh, technical knowledge uh, a lot of designer knowledge and a lot of um, yeah many you know it, expert skills if you want to develop the the wool the rug and the paper so we are focusing on the milk Mm. and we uh, and also on the cheese and i think that's uh, that's where a lot of potential is and i'm very happy to uh, say that we now have um, the the hotels of the Taj group in Rajasthan they are buying uh, the camel cheese we have lots of orders and people really love that the cream cheese and they also love the feta so and we've had good support also from the Maharaja of Jodhpur and his family who are really now uh, recognizing this as the heritage, part of the Marwa heritage and are um, are really supporting it. And um, mm. so I'm, I'm at the moment, I'm very optimistic about that. Mm. And that cheese, I've had that cheese. It's fantastic. It's really world class. Very good. Yeah. Now in that upcoming international year, we are uh, planning a lot of uh, activities around that. So in January, we'll be uh, actually organizing a um, an international workshop of camel pastoralists where people are coming from Mongolia, Iran, Kenya, Peru. And I mean, these are all people who work at the grassroots. So we want to, you know, project their perspective. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also, uh, we are also planning, uh, I think, culinary events. So I've just come back from Saudi Arabia, uh, where I participated in the gourmand awards um, and uh, there are a lot of chefs were there people from gastronomy sector and they were really um, uh, interested in 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 camel milk and to learn about it so uh, we hope to invite some of them for 
cooking event. They were going to come to Sadri, Rajasthan. Yeah, they want to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, those plans are not. That will be in the second half of 2024. The this cookery event. Yeah, mm-hmm. in Sadri, absolutely. Yeah. Wow, that that that's that's yeah. very good. So you know, and so I was thinking when I was reading of the reading the book, and you know, you're talking about all the uh, events that even the pastorals that Ika have gone for one thing have gone for these international. Uh, conferences and you know they've presented there like these really rural folk who've uh, uh, who now have an international sort of perspective and so even if they're yeah. unlettered it adds to their uh, knowledge base right if they if you're meeting past pastoralists from somewhere in Africa somewhere in South America and a lot of good can come out of that right so even if somebody yeah. from Peru has and their uh, uh, you know alpacas have a different have different ideas that can so so yeah 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 but i mean see the but the problems are very similar uh, everywhere that now i mean how do you link uh, these uh, you know pastors in remote areas to the market and mm. um, are we going to set up systems i mean that kind of mirror the the cow dairy sector where there's a few companies dominating everything and controlling anything so what's really important for us is to put systems in place where the agency uh, you know, remains with the camel herders, where they not become, you know, uh, exploited by, you know, maybe some multinational company or so. I mean, this is our our dream. I don't know if it is possible, but but I mean, we at least we need to try try for that. Uh, because I know the situa- dairy situation in in Europe, where the farmers, I mean, you can't exist as a farmer anymore because you know you are totally at the mercy of of the companies you have to buy their feed and you you have no control over the prices and we want to avoid that situation happening in the camel sector okay. and that's the same i mean even in peru uh, for my friend i know that the, the so the alpaca fibers are very valuable this is but there's also like an alpaca mafia you know which controls everything so that the those poor, uh, you know, alpaca breeders themselves, they have nothing to say. They're totally under their thumb. Um, oh, gosh. So I'm, I'm just, yeah, I'm just hoping the camel will, you know, give, bring some change to the world because uh, here that we can avoid the, the mistakes that have been made, uh, you know, with other types of animals. Hmm. But are the Raika themselves, I mean, what about the younger generation when they're seeing all this and, you know, they're seeing their parents traveling and meeting people from other pastoral communities across the world? Uh, is there being, is there some sort of enthusiasm in the younger lot now? Uh, they, I mean, there is some, uh, I mean, for traveling, of, of course, everybody wants to travel. But uh, <laughs> I mean, in terms of, <laughs> and the Raika, you know, they do brilliantly, you know, if you, you can drop them anywhere in the world. And they know how to, you know, if they don't speak a word of the language, but they, they manage. I mean, they are pastors. They can deal with all eventualities. They're mm-hmm. always in good shape. Uh, they never have any problem. Uh, but so, okay, so traveling is fine. But uh, the young people also, when they see that there's, uh, uh, you know, it, that income can be generated from, uh, uh, from camels, they, they become interested. And there are, there is, I mean, there is a proportion of, you know, the majority of the young Raika, they want to go into the city and uh, do something. And But there's also a minority which does not, I mean, they do not like to go to the city. They prefer uh, looking after their animals because they actually, they have some freedom. You know, they're, they're yeah. their own boss if they hurt their animals. If they go yes. into the city, they are under some 
you know, some shopkeeper, mm-hmm. shop owner or so, and they have they have no freedom. So yes, no. yes, yeah, that's the whole thing about the herding life, na. It's the, the, the they are semi nomadic, so they are wandering and you know. But when I see them, I think, wow, it's such a great. There's so much freedom there, but also as uh, as the country gets you know more and more modern, I don't know how long that can yeah. go on. You know. No, no, it's very difficult, job. I mean, it's a very there are a lot of hardships involved. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, we should not definitely should not romanticize uh, being a pastor. There's a lot of hard work. It's tw- if you have animals, you know, twenty four seven, you have to take care of them. You can't take a holiday. You can't take a break. You have to be there all the time. So it's a hard job, but it also it has some rewards. Uh, if you have, if you find, if it's not camels, but if you uh, have sheep and goats, it's actually quite profitable. Also, um, so there's yeah. there's good profit margin in sheep and goats. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but but it's I mean our it's our responsibility or that we create space that we leave spaces for livestock moving around. I mean livestock is made to move. Animals are made to move and not to be fixed in one place. Huh? Uh, uh, yeah. And I, it, it's a it's a challenge to make people understand. But I think eventually we'll we'll get there. So, yeah. Okay, so uh, you know, I mean, I think this is a very interesting book because of all the things that it makes you think about. Even if you're not from a pastoralist background, I mean, one sees, you know, I mean, in India at least, you see cattle, you see uh, goats moving, and though in the city much less nowadays. Though when I was growing up, it wasn't such a nobody even commented about it. But more and more, you know, we're becoming more westernized, I guess, in that sense, where we think that animals should be far away and not near us so mm-hmm. you know that's kind of sad but well uh, what i found also interesting about your book was you know how slowly things emerge ideas one come emerges from the other and it's like a sort of organic pro- progression to where you've gotten today right so anyway so um so for the for the listeners you know go out and get camel karma 20 years among india's camel nomads by ilse kohler Rolofson, it's a very interesting book and you'll, you know, it makes you think about a lot of things and about how uh, our pastoralists have contributed such a lot, but haven't got the appreciation I think that they really do deserve. So thank you so much, uh, Ilse, for talking to me. Oh, thank you so much, Manjula, for listening to me. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) I think we're on the same wavelength. Okay, of course. Thanks a lot. Yeah, Okay. take care. Bye. Bye. To stay updated on this podcast, follow us at HD Smartcast on all the major social media platforms. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to www.hdsmartcast.com. Smartcast.com.